Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another great week on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Now, for those of you who have been listening to the show for some time, and I know many of you have been listening to the show for years, you know that it is predominantly about business and entrepreneurship. But from time to time, I like to bring on experts on things like health and performance because I'm a firm believer that effectively scaling up your career or your business is also about scaling up your awareness on how you can live healthier and therefore perform better and become more productive, not just in your business, but also for yourself and for your family. Well, I'm pleased to say that today's episode is a big dose of just that because I have world expert Dr. Stephen Gundry on the show talking about everything that we can possibly cover about performance, energy levels, so that you can better attain the goals in your life. Now, they could be business goals, they could be personal goals. We are going to get all into that today. Now, you may have heard of Dr. Stephen before. He is a New York Times best-selling author of books such as The Plant Paradox, The Energy Paradox, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, and his latest one, which is Unlocking the Keto Code. Now, I've talked a lot on the show about my personal journey into endurance sports, ultra running. I've been doing that for many, many years. I've played basketball for something like 42 years, and I've become very interested, curious, dare I say it, obsessed with how I can maximize my energy to drive performance. Now, I've personally found that a keto diet has worked best for me. And what we're going to do today is we're going to sort of go into that in a bit of detail as to why that's the case. But we're also going to talk about other diets, things like veganism, routines, habits, different things that drive performance. But we're going to do it from the lens of, as I said, someone who is an absolute medical expert. Up until 500 years ago, when Columbus um, started Colombian trade, no one from Europe Asia or Africa had ever encountered a plant from North or South America. And nobody had encountered corn, nobody had encountered quinoa, no one had encountered peppers, tomatoes, potatoes, and yet these are staples, quote, of our diet, and we've only been exposed to these things for 500 years. Now, before we get into the show, I just want to say that just because I am into keto and those sort of things, it doesn't mean that I'm suddenly projecting that onto you. (laughs) What I have found to be very true is that different things work for different people. So what I encourage you to do as we go down the rabbit hole in this show is take some notes, but more importantly, have a think about what you're doing now. Think about how you're feeling. Think about how that's impacting your business, your life, your goals in general. And maybe just have a think about some different things that you can try. Everything that's going to happen to you, good or bad, uh, is because of what's happening in your gut, because of what's happening with your microbiome. All right. It's a great episode in exploring the things that are going to make you perform better now and in the future. So there we have it. A fun conversation today with Dr. Stephen. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Dr. Stephen Gundry. Hey everyone, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up. I have a guest on the show with me today, which is going to be more of a geek out for me personally, considering most of you know my athletic background, ultra marathons, running, productivity, trying to maximize my own energy, and also being a bit of a geek when it comes to, to diet 
nutrition and all that sort of thing. I'm delighted to have world-renowned expert on all of those matters and more, Stephen Gundry, on the show today. Welcome, Stephen. Next, thanks for inviting me. Let's uh, geek out today. Let's uh, riff back and forwards. Um, now, you have an illustrious career, multiple books touching on various components of diet. I know that um, you wrote a, a famous book called The Plant Paradox, but today we're going to be talking a bit about keto, actually, and maybe some min misconceptions around keto. But what I'd like to know before we get into all of that is, is your background, but more importantly, your background that's led you to be, have so much interest in, in nutrition in the way that you have. Yeah. Um, so actually, um, maybe you don't know, but I actually spent a year as a senior registrar at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Kids as a wow. uh, children's heart surgeon. And so uh, very fond of London and its uh, environs. So uh, always good to hear a normal accent. Uh, well, I'm Australian <laughs> with a weird kind of twist. I've been here for 20 years, though, so they call me yeah. a Brit these days. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So anyhow, uh, I was um, I was a famous. I was a professor and chairman of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University. Uh, my partner and I, Leonard Bailey, pioneered infant and pediatric heart transplants. Um, I was also famous for operating on people who nobody else wanted to. Um, there were a few of us who just like challenges, and <laughs> my life was changed uh, about twenty five years ago. When I met a gentleman by the name of Big Ed, I, I call him Big Ed in all my books, and he was a big fat guy who had uh, 48 years old, had inoperable coronary artery disease. That means everything's so clogged up in your blood vessels that you couldn't put stents in and you couldn't do a bypass because there wasn't any place to bypass. You couldn't sew in anything. And people like Big Ed would go around the uh, United States looking for an idiot to, you know, take him on. And uh, he got turned down multiple centers. And he spent about six months doing this. And he ended up in my office. And I looked at his angiogram, the, the movie of his blood vessels from six yeah. months previous. And I said, you know, I, I got to agree with everybody else. I, I can't help you. And he says, well, look. Uh, it's been six months. I've been on a diet. I've lost 45 pounds. Now, the reason he's called Big Ed, he weighed 265 when I met him. Wow, so he, really? He, yeah, he had been over <laughs> you know, 300 pounds. And he said, and I've gone to a health food store and I've been taking a bunch of supplements. And he literally brings in a big shopping bag full of supplements. And so I'm going, well, you know, I'm scratching my professor beard and going, well, you know, good for you for losing weight. And that's really not going to do anything in here. And I know what you did with all those supplements. You've made expensive urine, which I firmly believe. And he said, well, look, you know, I've come all this way. He was from Miami. And he said, couldn't we get a new angiogram and just see? <sighs> okay. So we get a new angiogram the next day. And this guy in six months time has cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his heart. They're gone. And... I'm going, what the heck? You know, so I'm going. Just a time check here, Stephen. When was this approximately a year? This was about 25 years ago. So okay. back in uh, the mid 90s. Wow. Mid -90s. Okay. Okay. So uh, I said, hey, uh, tell me about this diet. And he starts going through what he's eating, what he's not eating. And 
I, I go, wait a minute, time out. Um, I, back in the dark ages, uh, went to undergrad at Yale. And back in those dark ages, we could actually design our own major. It was like doing a master's thesis, and you had a thesis that you had to defend. And so I had a major uh, that you could take a grade ape, manipulate its food supply, manipulate its environment, and prove you derive it a human being. And I defended my thesis. I got an honors, and I gave it to my parents and um, went away to become a famous art surgeon. So as Big Ed telling me about this diet, I said, wait a minute. That's my thesis at Yale. And now I said, uh, I called my parents. I said, do you have my thesis? They said, yeah, we got it in the shrine. And I said, well, send it up to me. So um, <laughs> I was a big fat guy. Even though I was running 30 miles a week, I was doing 5K, 10K, half marathons on the weekends. And I was going to the gym one hour every day. And I was obese. I had high blood pressure. I had prediabetes. I had such bad arthritis in my knees. I wore braces on my knees to run. And, uh, you know, I'm going, but I'm doing everything healthy. I was eating a low fat diet. So then I said, Hey, let me look at those supplements. And I start rummaging through. Now I was very famous for protecting the heart, uh, during heart surgery and for heart transplants by putting a bunch of stuff down the veins and arteries of the heart to protect it. And I'm looking through Big Ed's stuff, and a lot of this stuff uh, is what I was putting down the veins and arteries of the heart. Now, he was swallowing the dumb stuff. Never occurred to me. So long story short, I put myself on my thesis, and I lost 50 pounds my first year, and I started taking a bunch of supplements. And my blood work changed, my high blood pressure went away, my cholesterol went away, my arthritis went away. And then I started taking the patients that I would operate on and say, okay, you know, I patched you up. Now to stay away from me the rest of your life, I want you to follow this program. And I want you to go to a health food store and buy some supplements. And these people their diabetes went away, their arthritis went away, their you know high blood pressure went away. So after about a year of this at Loma Linda, I had an epiphany, which was a really stupid idea. I said, you know, I've got this all wrong. I shouldn't operate on people and then teach them how to avoid me. I should teach them how to avoid me so I'll never have to operate on them. Now, that's what we call a Jerry Maguire moment. If you've seen, yeah, the film. It, 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 <laughs> it, it's like as a, you know, as a heart surgeon, that's a really bad career choice. But I literally uh, resigned my position and walked away and set up a clinic uh, here in Palm Springs, which is just down the road from Loma Linda in Southern California. And I basically said, hey, I want to teach you what to what to eat. I want to take certain foods away from you. I want you to eat certain foods. I want you to buy some supplements, not from me. And we're going to do blood work on you every three months that our insurance will cover. And let's see what happens. So, you know, after doing that for a considerably long time, the, the breakthrough event was uh, five years ago with the publication of the plant paradox, which is sold millions of copies, 36 foreign languages, and it's still a big seller. And, and you know that, what? So, I so love that's what started I, me off. I love it when I ask a question and I can just get to shut up because that was awesome. 
now I'm going to share something with you if that's okay, Stephen. Um, and yep. it goes back to 1984. So in 1984, in fact, behind me, there's a picture of a gentleman who's running a marathon in Adelaide, South Australia. And he's my grandfather and he's up there. Now I may have this a little bit incorrect, but he's pretty much one of the first guys to run a marathon, certainly having, having a, a double bypass, his second double bypass. And I remember standing there as a 10 year old in 1984, waiting for him to cross the marathon finishing line. He did it in four hours and 10 minutes, and, but he thought everyone said he was going to die. We're talking 1984, right? Yeah. And and then I've had this kind of thing all through my life because he had he had I think three separate um, open heart surgery interventions mm -hmm. in his life, mm -hmm. starting at mm -hmm. 40. And mm -hmm. I've been thinking, God, I'm going to be maybe I've got that, <laughs> right? So so I just want to set the scene of that because that's been in the back of my mind for years and years and years. So I'm just really curious now. What specifically was it? What what was the diet change, the, the things that you were putting around the heart that now people are putting in their mouth? What are the things? Well, so I have a, a painting that uh, was done for me. I don't know if you can see it. I can see it. But uh, so the road to health is paved with good intestines. <laughs> play on words not intentions we're talking about intestines i got intestines it. and that's actually a summary of what hippocrates said 2500 years ago that all disease begins in the gut and how this guy the father of medicine knew this is still perplexing to me but all of my research others research points to the fact that uh everything that's going to happen to you, good or bad, uh, is because of what's happening in your gut, because of what's happening with your microbiome, uh, those mm -hmm. trillions of bacteria and fungi and viruses, and their interaction with the wall of your gut and you. And uh, with each passing year, we learn more and more about how complex that interaction is. Give you an example. Um, recently, we had a patient, a 68-year-old guy who actually ma manages a orthopedic doctor's office clinic for years. And this guy has a total cholesterol of over 500 on the American scale. Mm -hmm. uh, LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, of about 400. And his doctor colleagues are saying, geez, you know, you're a walking heart attack. You're, you're a dead man walking and we got to get you on a statin drug and we got to get this down. And he's resisted. And long story short, he made an appointment to see me and we do some really interesting blood tests to see how sticky your cholesterol might be and how sticky your blood vessels are. And uh, I had the results. And when I saw him, he says, look, you know, since before I saw you, they talked me into having a CT coronary angiogram because they knew I was all clogged up. And it's the new modern way of getting a cardiac catheterization. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this guy has absolutely positively no any plaque in his coronary arteries. They're, you know, smooth as a baby's butt. And I said, well, I could have saved you the trouble because, you know, your blood work shows that, yeah, you got a cholesterol of 500, 
but it's not activated. Your blood vessels are lined with Teflon, and I could tell you pretty convincingly that that's not your, ever going to be your issue. And he said, but why doesn't anybody know that? I said, because quite frankly, our drug-driven culture doesn't want us to understand that our health is in our own hands and not in some drug company's hands. Wow. Um, I'm not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not surprised because I believe that to be true anyway. And I've seen examples of situations where um, medical drugs prescriptions have had a, a massively adverse effect on people that I've known. But oh, yeah. I'd love to understand the detail here if we can. So we said we go down some rabbit holes. I don't want to disappoint. What exactly sure. is going on here? Is, is everyone's body um, ha has different, um, different ways of reacting to food? Or is there, a, is there a general principle here where certain things that we take or don't take or eat or don't eat can have that sort of dramatic effect on us. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, just actually to get back to you, your your father, um, people of Northern European ancestry um, care, can carry a gene that makes them make a particularly unusual type of cholesterol that a lot of doctors don't even measure mm. called lipoprotein little a. And it's incredibly common in the British Isles, uh, often called the Irish gene, the English gene, the Scottish gene. Uh, and it makes a type of cholesterol that uh, statin drugs not only don't re reduce, but actually make worse. And I can't tell you the number of people. In fact, I had one yesterday who had heart disease, has stents, and their their cardiologist has them on a statin drug, but they carry LP little a, and they make this little particle that drills into their blood vessels. And diet has no effect on it. Statin drugs has no effect on it. But a simple vitamin called vitamin B3, niacin, makes it go away. Wow. And now, why wouldn't anybody <laughs> want to know that? Well, because a vitamin doesn't make any money for anybody. Mm. And so cardiologists uh, were never taught to be interested in this. Now, are there points? Can I just jump in quickly? Are there points, though, where obviously we can talk about the natural um, vitamins and minerals and things like that? But are there certain use cases or, or situations you've seen where actual medical drugs have to be used? Or, oh, yeah. Or, okay. I, yeah, don't get me wrong. Um, if you break a leg, I'm going to put a cast on it and we're going to keep a cast on it till the bone heals. If you have a heart attack and get a stent, um, even I am going to put you on a statin drug, okay. which is an anti-inflammatory drug. And I'm going to probably keep you on that until I can teach you how to eat and get you on some supplements. And then I'm going to take away the cast, right? Got it. Uh, Got it. So that's the crutch. The crutch still that, needs to be used on certain situations, but it's not, it's not the thing that's going to be the sustainable solution. Correct. I mean, I've never met a type two diabetic that I couldn't not have them di be a diabetic. If I teach them how to eat, never, never met one. 94% of people who come to me with an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, like lupus, 94% of people resolve their issue in a year by changing what they eat. I mean, it's like, holy cow, uh, who would have believed this? Hippocrates would have believed this. So, 
So getting I, back, I expect you don't get invited to speak, uh, do keynotes at the at the big drug company um, conventions, and um... <laughs> no, uh, no, uh, I'm not. I guess I'm not invited there. And no, I can imagine. The good good thing is I, I don't have any drug reps that call in my clinics. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> this is. So I mean, this is fascinating to me. I mean, let's. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you again. Let's keep on keep on going down this line of thought because I do want to get into the practicalities of it. But I also love the setup of this. So let's let's keep on going. So the practicalities are, and I, I went into this a lot in in the plant paradox. There, normally, um, we have evolved eating plants, and plants have evolved to keep from being eaten. Uh, this seems odd when you first think about it, but plants were not put here on Earth for us to eat. Uh, they were here first. They have a life. Uh, they want to live and they want their babies to live, their seeds. Uh, when predators arrived and insects were actually the first plant predator, uh, plants couldn't run, they couldn't hide, they couldn't fight. But they're chemists of incredible ability. I mean, they, they can turn sunlight into matter and we haven't figured out how to do that yet. So they use chemical and biologic warfare to convince their predator that maybe it's not worth the predator's time to eat them or their seeds. And they try to make the predator feel bad in various ways. Um, they paralyze insects for one thing. So the insect figures or any animal figures, you know, every time I'm eating these plants, I'm not thriving, I'm not feeling very good, my, my joints ache, I think I'll go eat something else. The plant wins, the animal wins, everybody's happy. Then humans arrive. Humans, as unfortunately we now know, are pretty stupid. And so when we eat things that um, make us feel bad or um, really impair our ability, uh, we keep eating them. And we take Advil or Aleve to go for a run, or um, we take a... Uh, acid reducers so that we can have a, a corn dog with chili sauce on it, uh, even though it really hurts when we have that. Isn't so, that a little bit about just there's so many conflicting different, you know, if, if I go back even over my lifetime, I'm 48, right? And I think when I was growing up, firstly, it was, you know, you can't have fat. You've got to have a low fat diet, right? And then there was the whole Pritikin diet and all these different things. And, and of course you had Atkins come in, which is, you know, has a, a formation maybe into what we're going to talk about in a second, but I, I'm confused. And I sometimes, I mean, I suffer from inflammation from all the running. So I have knee pain, back pain. I haven't quite worked out how to correct that yet. So we can get into that, but I'm confused about whether I should be doing vegan or I should be doing keto. That's where I think one of the things is. So therefore I kind of think, well, I'll just eat stuff. <laughs> <laughs> which is not that's right. I get it, but I'm just trying to represent maybe the majority of what people do think when they get stuck into this level of confusion. Well, so again, what I've found through the years, and it's not just my research, but many others, that there are certain plants that we've actually evolved to eat, uh, that we've been eating for millions of years. And there's other plants that we have not evolved to eat. And or plants that we've actually only recently been exposed to. Uh, just as an example, no human being ate a grain or a bean until 10,000 years ago when agriculture started. 
And fascinatingly, human beings were on average about six feet tall 10,000 years ago. And we shrank uh, dramatically. First, culture. we lost about a foot of height. And anyone from the UK who goes around and visits castles like I used to, and you see these little, you know, armored suits, so, you know, four and a half feet tall or five feet, mm -hmm. yep. um, <laughs> we, that was the actual, you know, diet of breads and grains and beans that was shrinking us. Um, yeah. Uh, when, when the English came to America, the American Indians, uh, were were shocked by these little people uh they've never seen little people before and it was little people least... quite wide people i was at um the tower of london a couple of weeks ago with a family looking at uh, king henry the eighth statue ah, yes. and he yeah. was he's about five ten but he's massive he's <laughs> he's really big <laughs> exactly so anyhow uh, for instance just again up until 500 years ago when columbus uh, started colombian trade no one from Europe, Asia, or Africa had ever encountered a plant from North or South America. And nobody had encountered corn. Nobody had encountered quinoa. No one had encountered peppers, tomatoes, potatoes. And yet these are staples, quote, of our diet. And we've only been exposed to these things for 500 years. And to our immune system, learning to tolerate a new food in 500 years is speed dating in evolution. And <laughs> we find that when we test people for these compounds, um, they are highly reactive to them. And when we take these compounds away from them and return them to, you want to call it an ancestral diet, want to yep. call it a paleo diet, that a lot of their issues, including inflammation, goes away. So I've got a couple of people that I, I, I know very well who have moved very close into an ancestral way of eating, even down to the point of carnivore type of eating, like literally we'll just be eating mainly meat and maybe um, honey, pasteurized milk, that type of thing. And then you've got obviously the, the, uh, the other dimension of plant-based all the way to vegan. How do you contextualize that? I mean, is it that that for some people vegan is great and it's right? <laughs> Again, this is your opinion, and I, and I I really want to unpack this. Yeah. So you know, um, Loma Linda is an Adventist institution, and Adventists uh, are primarily vegetarians and vegans. Yeah. And Loma Linda is the only blue zone in the United States. The, those areas that Dan Butner decided people live very long lives and. The Adventists of Loma Linda live very long lives. Uh, because of my professorship there for most of my career, I see a lot of vegans and vegetarians, and they yeah. are some of the sickest people that I know when they first arrive. Because mm. in the United States, uh, vegans are what I jokingly call uh, grainitarians, pastatarians, and beanitarians. And they eat some of the most uh, gut-destroying um, foods there are. On the other hand, uh, I jokingly tell my patients if they want a perfect health, they should become a gorilla who lives in Italy. Now, what I mean by that is gorillas eat 15 pounds of leaves every day. And uh, gorillas have more muscle mass than you and I could ever imagine. Uh, and they get all their protein from leaves. 
So, uh, but olive oil has just unbelievable health promoting properties. And we could just have a whole thing about olive oil. Anyhow, uh, so what I, if you wanted perfect health, you should eat leaves and pour olive oil on it. And, uh, and that's it. Uh, and, and, and that's <laughs> it. Now, in, in my new book, there's a proviso that if you really want perfect health, you probably ought to have a pretty generous helping of goat and sheep cheeses. Wow. And you go, what? <laughs> You're getting lots of wows on this because I, I, I am fascinated by this whole thing. Because back to my point, right, around the, the science or, or the, the perspectives change. Like, you know, I mean, if, if I can go back to the carnivore thing and then, then I definitely yeah. want to talk about your view, your view of keto today and all that. Do you think if someone is at the extreme of either end, it's bad? So if someone's just eating meat, <laughs> right, and so let's say... Yeah, let, I just I want to debunk yeah, some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I don't mind a carnivore diet as an elimination diet um, okay. because uh, elimination diet in general is taking away what are called lectin-containing compounds, mm -hmm. the plant-based compounds that cause leaky gut. And we do Plant-based proteins pretty much, aren't they? Yeah, yeah so, plant-based proteins. Yeah, yeah, they're the defense system of a plant. And so you get rid of it. And, but the problem is that our, we've evolved with a set of microbes and we have an incredibly symbiotic relationship with this set of microbes. These microbes want um, plant uh, carbohydrates, uh, which are polysaccharides, mul multiple sugars, if you want to call them resistant starches, that's fine. If you want to call them prebiotics, that's fine. But the evidence is increasingly clear that for long-term health, we are absolutely positively dependent on the compounds that these bacteria make uh, for from eating these prebiotics. And those compounds actually tell our mitochondria how to work, how to work properly. They actually tell our brain how to think and think properly. And just to summarize, there has never been a society, a long-lived society, that are carnivores. It does not exist. And the vast majority of long-lived societies have one of the things that's remarkable about most of them is they don't eat a lot of animal protein. Mm. Uh, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, the beef capital of America. You know, you know, side of beef for breakfast, and you know, another side of pork for lunch. So I am not anti-meat. Um, you know, I was bred for it, but the evidence is that it's not exactly our friend. I'm very pro, um, if you were going to eat a meat, quote, an animal product, you're so smart eating clams and mussels and oysters and small fish. And we could go into that um, forever. But uh, it's almost like so the people talk about the Mediterranean diet in terms of it's it's fish, you know, but obviously not the ones that hold lots of mercury. Correct. It's it's salads. You know, when you go to Italy, you're right. As long as you stay off the pasta. <laughs> if you go to Greece, it's probably a good example. I spent a lot of time down there and it's it's kind of lean meat, fish, yeah. salad. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in fact, one of the 
longest living populations is a little village south of Naples that I visited called Acciaroli. And Acciaroli is very unique in that uh, they eat a lot of little anchovies and mm -hmm. they have a lot of olive oil. They do not have pasta or bread. Originally, it appears it was just too expensive for them. So they don't eat breads and pastas. The uh, irony they, of that being so close to Naples as well. Yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, where pizza was was Pizza invented. was like originated, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah but uh, they, um, and they have a lot of wine. Uh, and they uh, they have more centenarians, people over 100 per population than anywhere in the world. 30% mm. of their population are over 100. I find I find the whole thing fascinating, particularly when you look at a westernized diet and the, and the degree of processed food. And one of the thoughts I had, um, again, with no science, just my own thinking is that the people who are kind of eating, let's say it's a carnivore diet or they're eating a, a vegan diet or whatever, a lot of them are just not having processed food. A lot of them are just True. having stuff that as, as, as natural as possible. And I wondered if, where does that fit into this? Obviously that's important, but you know, what I'm sort of hearing from you is that it's a bit more than just that it's, it's natural food, but it's the mix. Well, one of, of the, you know, one of the things that's happened with processed foods is that we've, we've taken all of the food that the gut microbiome would normally have been given in the process of us eating whole foods. Mm -hmm. And we've taken that part away. And so these guys are actually starving uh, to death. There's a fascinating theory out of China that I like called the gut-centric theory of hunger. And briefly, we've tried to figure out where hunger comes from for the last 50 years. And recently, we've known that the gut bacteria actually control uh, what we want to eat and how much we want to eat of it. There are obesogenic bacteria that take over your brain and say, hey, I need some processed foods and I need a lot of saturated fat and give me some sugars and, you know, I'll be I'll be quiet. Um, and then we also know that if you give good gut bacteria these fibers, these prebiotic fibers, that they actually send a message to your brain that, hey, we're good. You don't have to be hungry. We got what we needed and have a nice day. So the Chinese did an experiment with volunteers where they put them on a water fast for two weeks. And, and <laughs> half the group, got a hundred calories of prebiotic fiber that prebiotic fiber they couldn't digest it they got no nutritional benefit it was only eaten by their gut bacteria the other group didn't get it the group that got the prebiotic fiber two weeks of water fast had absolutely no hunger the other guys are ravenously hungry why because the bacteria were going <laughs> got our stuff. We're good. Um, have a nice day. The other guys are going, we're starving to death down here. When, when's it? So it's all the signaling, the signaling of that. It's to, exactly wow. signaling. It's all signaling. God. I mean, you know, the, the, <laughs> the whole idea, little one cell microorganism could control us. is so against 
our concept that we're the greatest thing that ever happened uh, besides sliced bread, but that's another story I don't want to talk about. No, um, and, and, and I think what you've just said for the first half an hour of our conversation is sliced bread is probably not the thing anyway, but right. <laughs> let's get into, let's get into your book. I mean, what, what I'm fascinated to know personally, I've uh, shared with you a, a bit of my story anyway, some of the things that I've personally um, struggled with information being one uh, endurance athlete. Uh, energy and and just feeling like I have the the drive, the ability to do the stuff I want to do is super important to me. And as I said, I'm experimenting. So let's talk about your latest research, your latest book. And if someone was going to come to you like me, who is you know has multiple businesses, goes to the gym all the time, all this sort of stuff, and they said to you, "Listen, I just want to I just want to have maximum energy. I want to feel great. I want to make sure that I'm putting stuff in my body that's going to give me sustainability, longevity." How would you how would you approach that? Well, if you if you take care of your gut microbiomes, um, they will take care of you. Um, I had the pleasure of knowing the godfather of fitness, uh, Jack LaLanne, um, back before he died. And Jack had a saying that my advisors tell me never repeat. Jack had a saying, if it tastes good, spit it out. Um, now <laughs> even red wine, <laughs> <laughs> what he meant by that is he said, you really should not be eating for this two by three inch piece of muscle, your tongue, you should be eating for your gut microbiome. And if you do that, and quite frankly, a lot of the things that they like to eat may not taste very good, um, leaves, um, bitter greens. Uh, so, I think he was right. I think it really, he, he knew what Hippocrates was saying. So in your case, uh, one of the things that got me interested in uh, ketones in general is that athletes have been told that for maximal performance, they should be eating a very low carb ketogenic diet and mm-hmm. that um, carbs are, uh, particularly for an endurance athlete are kind of an Achilles heel because you will eventually run out of glucose. And Mm -hmm. if you don't, you know, get it back, uh, then your performance will falter. On the other hand, uh, you have within you a large amount of fat that can be liberated into what are called free fatty acids. And those free fatty acids can be used as a fuel just as well as glucose. Uh, And you really ought to do that. That got morphed into, well, free fatty acids can be converted in the liver to a very short chain fat called ketones, ketone bodies. And people said, oh, you know, you really should be in ketosis because ketones are even better. They are the ultimate fuel, particularly for endurance athletes. And this whole cult uh, or religion. (laughs) I got got sucked into this, by the way, Steve. I'm going to be honest. When I was running, I've done 100K and 100 mile races. And and my philosophy, if you like, or what I believe to be true from what I was hearing was that I couldn't survive that length of running on glycogen. So therefore, I had to train my body at lower heart rates to utilize fat stores for energy. Yeah. So that part is actually pretty good, except Mm. 
when you actually look at the data that, that's come out of the NIH, and I was a, a clinical associate at the NIH, and I know this work, and out of Harvard, if you take athletes or people on a ketogenic diet, even at full ketosis, your body only gets 30% of its fuel from ketones. The rest is actually from free fatty acids and glucose. Uh, and mm. the brain, which supposedly is dependent on ketones, that it's the perfect fuel for the brain, even at full ketosis, the brain still wants 30 to 40% of its calories is glucose. So it's not some perfect fuel. And if you look at race walkers on a ketogenic diet, and this is where most of the study has been done, the race walkers can do well on a ketogenic diet, except they have much more higher oxygen needs than someone not on a ketogenic diet. So yes, they can perform, but what's amazing for an endurance athlete, you have to breathe harder and faster to achieve the same athletic performance. And it's like, holy cow, I don't think I want to do that. No, and yet no. that's, the, <laughs> that's the data. So why do you want to be breathless as a performance athlete? And, but that's the data. There's got to be a happy medium here, doesn't there? I think between yeah, the yeah, two. Cause... Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, and the other thing is, you know, um, uh, Finney and Volchuk, they always said that you have to keto adapt, right? And that their, that keto adaption may take a couple of weeks, may take a month. But the work out of uh, Boston, Dr. Owen's lab showed, guess, guess what? That the highest consumption of ketones in a ketogenic diet by muscles was at three days. And then, and that's when Bullock and Finney said, no, 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 that's the worst. And it's like, really, guys? That's when they're burning the most ketones. So when you look at these conflicting data, you got to go, okay, you know, here's the real world. Here's what the lab shows. Here's what you lock athletes in a lab and follow them. It doesn't jive with what's, you know, reported out there. So what I did with unlocking the keto code, if ketones aren't some miracle fuel, and yet we know ketones exist and we know that they're produced, what the heck were ketones doing? Why do they exist? And they are what are called signaling molecules. And signaling molecules, we're beginning to realize that almost everything works with signaling molecules. Bacteria signal us with signaling molecules. Ketones actually signal our mitochondria, the little energy producing mm -hmm. organelles, to um, that times are rough and that they should actually protect themselves at all costs from damage. And it's this um, protection that ketones incite. Now, I'll give you a great example, an athletic study that I talk about in the book. They took Italian athletes, cyclists, and they put them on a training table for three months. Everybody had to eat exactly the same food. They divide them into two groups. One group 
ate in a 12-hour eating window. That meant they had breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning, they had lunch at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, they had to finish dinner at 8 o'clock at night. 12 hours eating, 12 hours not eating. The other group had a 7-hour eating window. They had break fast, breakfast at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. They had lunch at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they had dinner at 8, had finished at 8 o'clock. Seven-hour eating window, a 17-hour fasting window. They looked at their performance. Their performance was identical. They both did great. But here's the hooker. The short eating window athletes lost weight actually significant amount of weight, even though they are eating the same thing. And in terms of longevity, one of the markers a lot of us look at is insulin-like growth factor one. And if you look at super, super old people, late 90s, early 100s, they have very low insulin-like growth factor ones. If you look at people who avoid cancer, they have low insulin-like growth factor ones. The seven-hour eating athletes, plummeted their insulin-like growth factor one. The other athletes eating in a 12-hour window had no change. So the take-home message was the longer these guys were in ketosis. Ketosis starts about eight hours after you stop eating, if you have uh, metabolic flexibility, and I assure you, you do. Um, and so the longer your mitochondria are exposed to this message of ketones up to a point, uh, the better protected they are. And the more we know about how mitochondria probably underlie almost every health span in us, uh, the better you are. So, so then you say, okay, ketones do that. So Intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating is one way to accomplish this. Are there other ways to accomplish this? And you mentioned the Mediterranean diet. Well, it turns out there are compounds, plant compounds, called polyphenols that are actually used by the plant to protect their mitochondria from sun damage. Uh, plants hate the sun, but have to have the sun. Uh, and so they have this repair system of polyphenols. And lo and behold, it's the polyphenols that signal their mitochondria to repair and protect themselves. When we eat the polyphenols, it turns out that our gut bacteria just think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread to have polyphenols. They, in turn, make those polyphenols available to us, and those, in turn, protect our mitochondria. So things like black coffee tea. You know, the Brits are such idiots. No offense. You can't put milk in your tea, folks. It actually compounds the polyphenols so you can't get to them. That's why the Japanese and oh, Chinese wow. don't put milk in their tea. <laughs> so That's my why... wife and my parents-in-law, they're not going to like this at all. Thank God no, I'm, a black, I'm a black coffee guy, so we're good. <laughs> good. So olive oil, we've mentioned that before. It's loaded with polyphenols. Um, all these Red wine loaded with polyphenols. So you look at the Mediterranean diet and it's this amazing laden polyphenol laden diet. And that's what's happening. Wow. This is, this is fascinating. As I said, we, um, I can geek out on this forever. Um, and this is, and just talking about your, your book as well. And I suppose what you, I'm going to ask you this question, which may be a little bit uncomfortable because I'm sure as a doctor, you don't necessarily want to say there's a blanket thing for everyone, but 
if there are some non-negotiables that you think everyone should have as a protocol or, or just a standard in terms of the way that they think about nutrition, what are they? Well, so, and you can uh, say, Nick, I don't want to answer that question because it's like, you know, it, it, there, there isn't <clears> like a blanket thing, but I'm going to push you a bit. <laughs> sure. In, in general, um, what I've found through the years is that if I get certain, uh, plant compounds initially away from people mm -hmm. uh, to uh, seal their leaky gut. And if I can get other plant compounds into them that feed their bacteria what they want to eat and then get you know, perfect intestines, uh, then you can get away with I don't want to say murder, um, but you can probably <laughs> have a good time every now and then. Some people are so sensitive to some of these compounds that they can never have them back. Other people, it's, it's like when I first looked at all this stuff in people's blood and people said, oh, gee, I feel great. And or you're saying, well, I have inflammation. That's because I'm a runner. All inflammation comes from a leaky gut. I can guarantee you yeah. uh, that that's where it's from. And so we can see this in, in blood work and in sophisticated blood work. And it's kind of like the movie Jaws. There's this girl swimming on top of the ocean and she's oblivious to the fact that there's a giant great white about to eat her. And we could, we could see these great white sharks in people, uh, some of my carnivore diet people, and I wrote about this in the last book, they felt great on a carnivore diet. But when we looked at these markers of subtle inflammation, they were climbing. And then when we took their carnivore diet away from them, their markers went back down. We can watch this great white ready. Do you prescribe that most people should have blood work done regularly? Yeah, I think once you kind of get where you want to be, know what's going to work and what's not going to work, you can, you know, you can start to have a, you know, long-term plan. But early on, uh, we early on we got blood work every 3 months because we were doing a lot of changes with people. We were fiddling with supplements. Um and we could see the difference. Uh, again, I used to think things made expensive urine. Uh, just yesterday, I had a patient who, and I love people to experiment. They said, look, you know, I just got fed up with supplements and I was taking, you know, 16 of them. And for the last three months, I haven't taken a one. And, you know, uh, let's see if you can see it. And so, you know, we just went down. Oh, uh, so you stopped taking B12. Uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, look what happened. Your homocysteine went up. And oh, and I see you uh, stopped taking uh, vitamin D. Uh, yeah, oh, well, look, you know, these markers of your leaky gut went up because the vitamin D was actually, you know, repairing your gut. And they go, what the heck? They don't make expensive urine. And so, yeah, I like people to play around. It's fun. What about, and as, as we start to finish up the conversation, this has been awesome, by the way, and I'm definitely going to recommend people who are interested in this sort of stuff to, to have, a, have a read of your book. So there's the dog going. Um, uh, I love dogs. Uh, no, we we're have, a family, we we're a family show. Don't worry, the kids sometimes come in. Um, what about you personally? I mean, you, we started the conversation saying that you changed some of your habits. You lost a lot of weight. 
and obviously you're, you're learning as much as anything in researching. What are some of the protocols that, that you apply to your life now that work for you? Uh, first, first principle is get a dog. Um, I actually, <laughs> I actually write prescriptions for people to get a really? dog. I okay. do. And, and some of them actually come back with the prescription framed saying, this is the first prescription from a doctor that actually had any benefit <laughs> for my health. Um, uh, yeah, dogs force you to go out. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I just, uh, you know, hiked my dogs in my hills this morning before I came to work. They make you get out. They also, just philosophically, they make you observe things. Um, mm, yeah. And I think even stopping uh, to watch your dog sniff is, and dogs should have uh, sniff times, um, they are receiving such unique messages uh, that you just got to sit there and go, geez, you know, I wonder what text messages, you know, the, the dog next door left for my dog because my dog, you know, is really interested Getting in their emails, message. as we say. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, exactly. I think there's also a point like where it, it's, it stops you, right? It gives you an appreciation of being present, you know, when everything yeah. else is so chaotic. Like, you know, actually sitting there and seeing your dog run through a field or sniff something, you're kind of there, right? Which is another thing, which I think is a great thing in a world of distraction that we live in now. Yeah. I used to run 5Ks with a Yorkie. I, I kid oh, you yeah. not. And, <laughs> you know, I, I was never very good. I, I could do seven and a half, eight minute miles. Um, yeah, it's, it's all right. Uh, I'm an old guy. Uh, but my Yorkie. I mean, this Yorkie, I mean, it was like an inch off the ground, uh, but she loved it. And, you know, ears you know, flying back and you know, see the grin on her face and you just got to, you know, you're right. So anyway, that's one of the things. Uh, the other thing is I, as far as I know, was the first person to write about intermittent fasting in my first book a very long time ago. Uh, I do OMAD diets uh, half the year where I eat one meal a day. Okay. Uh, I don't do that all year round because I've found if you do that, you go mad. Um, <laughs> but, oh, yeah, I can totally appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but I think we should uh, cycle um, between summers and winters. We know modern hunter-gatherers follow a circadian rhythm of eating. They eat very differently in the summer and very differently in the winter. And we can actually follow their gut microbiome change. Uh, and I think those circadian cycles are very important. The other thing I think is incredibly important in our crazy world is sleep deprivation is yeah. just one of the biggest killers. And I don't care who you are. I mean, I was a heart surgeon who, you know, thought, hey, three hours of sleep, I'm good. Uh, and sometimes we have to do that. But uh, the evidence is beginning to get overwhelming. The, the vast majority of individuals need somewhere between seven, eight, maybe nine hours of quality sleep. And yeah. it affects uh, it. it repacks, that's something that I just to just to comment on that, that's something that I've found in the last probably two or three years has been the biggest game changer for me productivity wise. So when I, when I first started to move into more personal development after leaving the world of private equity, um, I started to do the usual thing that people do, which they, they start to have morning routines. They get up at 4.45 and all this stuff. The one shift I made in the last couple of years is now I go to bed earlier and I don't wake up with an alarm and I end up getting about eight hours sleep a night. And honestly, that's been the best productivity hack 
if you want to call it a hack, that I have done in the last number of years. Incredible. Uh, I wake up with an alarm. It's my one of my dogs standing on my <laughs> chest, licking my face, going, "Okay, it's time." <laughs> uh, we lock the dogs away for that. But no, but I, you know, I go to bed. But I, it's funny, like you know, I do track my sleep. I quite enjoy the idea of tracking sleep and, and looking at it. But um, but that's been the one thing for me. And and the people like years ago, I used to be a five hours of sleep, four hours a night sleeper, and I don't know how I survived. I really don't. I, I definitely don't think my whole brain was functioning when I was doing that. I was indoctrinated into this crazy world. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went uh, as a chief resident in uh, in surgery at the University of Michigan. I went four days without sleep. And then I got four hours of sleep and, you know, said, hey, you know, man, you know, I'm uh, I'm, I'm an animal. I'm good. The badge of the badge of honor, as they call yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's like, well, how stupid can you get? Oh, well. well I'm going to say, Stephen, this has been delightful. I've enjoyed this. We haven't gone too far down the rabbit hole, but I've certainly nah. geeked, geeked out enough. We could have got right. When we started getting into the whole mitochondria piece, we could have we could have gone further. But I think it's the right level and the right tone for my listeners. So Perfect. I just want to say thank you very much. And um, obviously, the book is called Unlocking the Keto Code, the revolutionary new science of keto that offers more benefits without deprivation, which is out now. Um, where can people reach out to you, Stephen, if they want to learn more about you? So they can find me at drgundry.com, my uh, supplement and food company, gundrymd.com, the Dr. Gundry podcast. Uh, i got two YouTube channels. Um, hopefully I appear on an email or popping up as you're scrolling. So uh, there. So you've you definitely got a lot going on, which is great. Well, as I said, it's been a delight, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I definitely think this is something that is a big need and people who reach out to me on a daily basis are always asking for different ways of thinking about this type of thing around energy, how they can perform better. And we've definitely covered that today. So thank you very much. Nick, pleasure to meet you and thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.